If you have a copy of God's Word, won't you find the book of Colossians? If you're new to God's Word, Colossians is going to be in the New Testament or the second half of your Bible. If you're on your device, we have a thing uh, that we have plugged in with an app called YouVersion Bible app, and you can follow along with tonight's message there as well. Again, if you're new to the Bible, Colossians is going to be towards the end of your Bible. If you hit Revelation, just back up a little bit, and you'll find this little letter called Colossians. It's written by a guy named Paul who's in a prison in Rome, and we've been journeying through this letter over the last few weeks, and we've been seeing some incredible truths that the greatest theologian of Christianity has laid out. And so I'm excited to get back in to the book of Colossians tonight. Thank you so much for weathering the storm and getting here tonight. Well, hey, anybody, uh, are, there, are there any flu shot people in the house? We already got the pumpkin spice crowd. Any flu shot people, like you love the flu shot? Yeah, what about you think it's a conspiracy? Yes, that's my, my people, right? I'm not a flu shot guy, but we are on the precipice of flu season. And a couple of years ago, the pediatrician advised that I get a flu shot. Some of you are like, Chad, you're not a child. What's going on here? Well, we were about to have a child, and so I went and got the flu shot thinking that I wouldn't get the flu and I'd be able to be hands-on with the baby. Well, lo and behold, the reason why I don't believe in a flu shot is because I got the flu, all right? And so I got the flu two weeks into this new little baby, and my wife, she doesn't care about me, Man, I didn't figure that out. Like, it, it is children and then I'm just kidding. Anyway, and so she banished me to the basement for like a month, and uh, she was like throwing meals down the laundry chute. You're like, knock it off down there, right? And I'm like, ah, you know, anyway. And so what happened was like the flu was crazy. This invisible virus I couldn't see got inside of me somehow, and then these symptoms began to take place. And so fever, I was late, I, you know, I was, I was like full of lethargy and lazy, and I didn't want to get out of bed, and I wound up preaching that night because I got a little tenacity in me, but you know, went against the doctor's orders and got, but I stayed at a distance. And so I tell, I tell you that story tonight that I had the flu because the flu to me is kind of like this thing that we call Christianity, that, that there's this invisible God that we've come here to worship, and we believe that he gets inside of people and that he begins to affect them or infect them. And the, the, the infection begins to lead to these symptoms that we call the Christian lifestyle. And so tonight, I'll start with this story about the flu because I think it's a great parallel to what it looks like to be in Christ. That the evidence of Jesus' infections in this, is the symptoms of Jesus-like behaviors. So many of, us, many of us have come here tonight and we're saying, hey, Jesus has changed my life. You know, maybe you say, like, Jesus saved me. I was born again. I don't know if you say it that country, but you know what I'm saying. And so you say things like that, and you say, man, I've been infected with this love relationship with Jesus. And I would say, well, what are your symptoms? Because if you're not bearing the symptoms of the flu, then you probably don't have the flu. And if you're not bearing the symptoms of Jesus, then you may not have Jesus. And so tonight, I want to start with us examining some things that Paul's about to lay out, some symptoms, if you will, of a gospel-infected life. That's what we've titled this message, a gospel-infected life, because we want you to see that you have the symptoms, or we want you to examine whether or not you have the symptoms. And so tonight, I want you to see the symptoms that you're supposed to have as a Christian, specifically forgiveness, love, and admonition. And I want to give you a pathway tonight in which you can become a better version of you. Like you can become the, the, the man or the woman of God that he intended for you to be. And there's this secret ingredient that we find in the text tonight that you're going to need to have inside of your life. And then there's lots of us that have come here tonight with hurts, habits, and hangups. And I want to give you some help so that you can begin to get past maybe the greatest hurt in your life. Colossians 3.12 is where we're going to start. Paul starts off with this word, and he simply says, therefore. Now, in the Bible, if you're new to this book, it's unlike any other book, and we read it a little bit differently, but it's important for us to understand some things. And so this word, therefore, is therefore a reason. And if you're writing in your Bible, you could circle therefore, and you just point an arrow or draw an arrow that points back to where we've been. And so it's important, if you're just now joining us, man, I encourage you, this is kind of like part two of Colossians 3. You should check out the podcast and get caught up to date, because Paul has said some really amazing, organic, earthly Christianity, on the floor type things starting in Colossians. Colossians 3. And so last week we said, hey, the, the, before we get to the putting on some things, Paul has told us to put off some things. And so we made a commitment to wage war against our sin. Amen? 
And Paul told us to put off some things. He told us um, as well to put on a new nature. And so we said last week, hey, repentance, to put it simply, it's a, a, a big Christian word that's thrown out a lot in churches like this. But simply what it means is that you, if you're going to repent, you're going to put off some things, but then you're going to put on some things. And that we don't want paradigm or we don't want the church of Jesus Christ to be an authentic church. We want the church to be a repentant church, that we want to wage war against our sin by confessing our sin one to another, praying for one another, receiving the forgiveness and the healing power of the Holy Spirit, and repenting and putting on the things of Christ. And so tonight, Paul is going to continue this conversation in which he doesn't want us just to be a sin manager, but he wants us to have a sin massacre and put to death the things that are causing death in our life, but put on a new way of life. And he wants us to bear the symptoms of a gospel-infected life. And so he says, therefore, and he reminds us real simply of who we are in Christ. He says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, that it's important that we look at the order and the arrangement of Paul's words. Paul, unlike any other New Testament author, like he is so precise with his linguistic logic throughout his letters. Peter, he's like, he's like me, he's like all over the place. He's just circular. He basically says the same thing throughout his entire letter, just different ways. James is like, oh yeah, you need to do this. Oh yeah, don't forget this. He's giving just a bunch of truth bombs. But Paul is like, hey, we started with theology. Now let's get to orthopraxy. Let's get to Christianity on the ground, what it looks like practically, but he wants to remind us of some things because our identity always leads to our activity. And so he says, hey, you are the elect of God. You are holy and you are beloved. You have to remember who you are in Christ. That statement, the elect of God, it can be somewhat divisive in the church. And if you aren't familiar with church ling lingo, then dismiss this, but I just want to make a real clear statement that when the Bible preaches that you are chosen, we're going to preach what the Bible preaches. And when the Bible says, hey, you've got to make a choice, we're going to preach what the Bible preaches. In this time when Paul says, hey, you are elect of God, we're just going to err like the Prince of Preachers aired, Charles Spurgeon, a guy, one of the greatest preachers in all of history. He was a preacher. He's an English man, so you know he was smart. He had an accent. And, and he says this, and I love this. He says, if I see in God's book two truths which I cannot square with one another, which I cannot reconcile, if I see the tension of God's word, I believe them both. I, I just go with what God's word said. I'm okay with God having a little bit of mystery about himself. I'm not okay with a God that I can understand and that I can comprehend. His ways are higher than our ways. And so I'm just going to be committed to preach the book that God told me to preach. And when it preaches, you are the elect of God, praise God that he chose me. And when it preaches, you better make a choice, then you better make a choice today. All right? And so that's what we're doing here tonight. And the order of this is so important. You're the elect of God. You're, you are holy. You are beloved. What, what Paul is trying to remind us is that you are a big deal in God's eyes if you know him. Like, like you, you didn't do something lovely in order for God to give you love. C.S. Lewis says that, that he doesn't love us because we're lovable. He loves us because he is love. And so this, these things, when he declares these things, he's saying, you are so important. Like the gospel is the only, like Christianity is the only faith where the verdict comes before the trial. Like you are declared innocent, you are declared free, and then we go on trial. It's the only faith where the score is given before the performance. And so the gospel is us not working and bearing the symptoms in order to get the infection. The gospel is we have been infected on the inside and then the symptoms flow from the outside. And so we work not for salvation we don't work for the election. We don't work for his holy standard or standing. We don't work for his love. We work from it. And he reminds us, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, it's time to put on some things. And he says this, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Some of y'all look at that list and you're like, man, I know Jesus, but I don't know if I know those adjectives, right? You know, you come here, we're just being honest, right? Like, describe your friend. Um, he, well, I don't think anything on that list would make his description, okay? Right? Like, he's funny, he's sarcastic, he's mean, and he's selfish. That's none of those are on the list, right? And so we look at a list like this and we're like, uh-oh, like maybe I need to be down here after the service, Right? And, and you begin to start measuring your life, and some of you think that Christianity is about you living a list like this in perfection. It's not. 
Somebody said, amen. Thank you, Jesus, right? It's not about you being perfect, but it is about you making progress. And so I love that Paul's already said, he's given us a framework. He says in Colossians 2, 6, just as you received Jesus Christ, so walk in him. And so I love this imagery. Like I have three little girls. I call my muchachitas Spanish for little girls, you know. And, and, and every one of them, when they learned to walk, it was like a glorious celebration. You know, I don't think they were like, I'm going to walk today, right? They just had kind of an oversized head. They were able to pull themselves up on the couch. And then they kind of did this. And they were like, you know. And we're like, yeah, the girl's walking, you know. And I got the iPhone out. We're FaceTiming Didi and T-Pops and Grandma. And we're like, our baby's walking. Let's go to McLean's, get some cookies, cinnamon rolls, Chateau chocolate chocolate milk, light candles, fireworks, whatever. My baby is walking, right? And how crazy would it be if I was like, uh, yeah, but she only took two steps and then fell. And come on, like, she's a failure. And I look at, I look at Chelsea, my wife, and I'm like, this, that's your fault, right? You see, these, these are trunks here, baby. These are legs. You, ain't, you got like some skinny things there, right? And so what if I, and I begin to like condemn her for, like, no, y'all would be like, you're a ter- terrible father. You, some people shouldn't be able to have kids, you. You know, and so y'all would say that. But no, we celebrated the fact that she was walking. And so when we look at a list like this, you need to know this, that when you are growing and you are trying and walking towards these symptoms, your heavenly father says, my baby's walking. And when you fall and you fail and you don't measure up, he says, get up and let's walk again. But don't stay down. How crazy would it be if my daughter fell at age one and a half and she stayed down until she was 30? And some of you have been following Jesus for about that long and you're not walking. And so get up and let's keep going towards Christ Because God celebrates your walk. He goes on in verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. You could circle bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Those are two big ideas we're about to land in in just a second. Some of your translations say forbearing with one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, I love how real the Bible is. You know, you got a complaint. Some people are like, this is outdated. Why we read this old book? Y'all ever had a complaint against somebody? Yes, okay. Anyway, so complain against one even as Christ forgave you, so also you must do. I love this translation in the New Living Translation. It kind of simplifies it. It says this, make allowance for each other's faults. That's forbearance. Make allowance for each other's faults. He's saying, hey, tolerate some of those weird things about one another. And forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. If you're taking notes tonight, write this down real quick. Forbear and forgive one another. Forbear and forgive one another. So sandwiched right in the middle of this verse 13 is the problem that Paul's addressing. He says, hey, if you have a complaint against one another, right? Like some of y'all know this all too familiar. And then some of you walked in here tonight, you're like, I don't have a complaint against anybody. Nobody has a complaint against me. I would call you naive, all right? You're not everyone's Chick-fil-A sauce, okay? You can't make everybody happy, all right? That's just not reality. You need to do life with some people, all right? And so there are these times where we have these complaints against one another. And Paul tells us real clearly that if you are going to be a follower of Christ, if you have your heart infected by the gospel, then you are to forbear one another, Or you're to bear with one another. It literally means that you put up with or you overlook the petty stuff. When people are different and you get around them, does it bother you? If you know Christ and you get around somebody that's got some sort of tick or weird idiosyncrasy or whatever it is, does it it just kind of get you on edge? And Paul is saying is when you get on edge, forbear. Bear with them. Put up with it. And don't get so upset. Proverbs 19 11 says this sensible people control their temper, they earn respect by overlooking wrongs. And listen, you don't have to correct everything, every time, and everyone. Some of y'all need to take a chill pill, and you need to forbear with some people in your life for once. And you need to begin to live the scriptures. So I'm like, man, you don't know the people in my family. You don't know the people in my community group. You don't know the people. Yeah, okay, yes, I do. I'm a pa- I pastor you guys, all right? And y'all pastor me at times, okay? You see how that works? I'm just kidding. Anyway, and so what I, I would suggest if you have kind of a short fuse and you have an anger problem, do what Lincoln used to do, Abraham Lincoln. He used to write hot letters. Now, get your mind out the gutter. They ain't like, like the old school sexting, okay? That's not that, all right? 
These are angry letters, all right? Some of you are like, whoa, what did he write, you know? No, no, he would get angry, and he would express his anger on paper, and then he would seal the letter, and he would write on the outside, never sent, never signed. And some of you, you need to have that outlet because you are having a hard time putting up with somebody in your life. And instead of you blowing up on them, you need to go blow up on some paper and then burn it or bury it or whatever. Be honest on the paper, but then you go out and you bear the symptoms of the gospel and forbear. He says to forbear and to forgive one another. I wonder, is your life marked by forgiveness? Are you, would you say that you are a good forgiver? So often we have this conversation, and some of you have heard my story that my dad, man, he did some shady things in our family. You know, he, he left when I was 12 on Mother's Day. Right, thanks, Dad. Great, great day, right? Way to, way to stick it to my mom. He went into jail for the first time when I was 16. We, we didn't have a Christmas. We lost the house we were living in because he, he wasn't able to pay child support. And people say, hey, how did, how, did you, how did you get through all of that hurt? How did you get through all that pain? So I like to think of it like this. I call it the circle of forgiveness. You can see it right here. And so initially in this first leg, I had the hurt, right? And, and you come here tonight, and you probably got to hurt too. Somebody's done something in your life. Somebody's let you down. Somebody's hurt you. And what happened in my relationship with my dad is he hurt, and then I tried to help. Like, I, I, I'm a man, and so I like to fix stuff. And so I'm like, you know what? Dad's drinking, but we can throw away his liquor, and we can help him. I remember one time we got a phone call. He's about to get evicted, lose his job. And so we went uh, all the way out to Odessa, Texas, a long drive, and we loaded up, and we come. We came to a bar. It was on his birthday. We surprised him. He was there for happy hour, and we said, okay, we're here to help. We went and cleaned up his apartment, and he said, I'm going to get cleaned up. We said, Dad, we're going to take you out for steak, dinner. He went in and, and crushed a pint of tequila while he was showering, came out stammering drunk and cussing a storm. And what I realized is that I tried to help, but I couldn't. And some of you, you've done that too. And so what I resolved to do is I just got bitter. <laughs> I was like, man, forget you, Dad. I'm done with you. So much so, I was living with him when I was 19. It was the summer in between my freshman and sophomore year in college. And he got real suicidal because he was drinking a lot of vodka that summer. And he began to make threats of suicide. I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to kill him. And, I, and finally, by the end of the summer, I was so bitter and so hard towards him. I said, do it. Quit talking about it. I can't do this anymore. When I'm walking people through this circle of forgiveness, I say, you know, most people, get, they get bogged down right here. They get hurt. They try to fix it. They try to help. And then they just resolve just to live with the bitterness. But you've got to do the work. You've got to trust God's way that he loves you and he loves you too much to leave you in your bitterness. And he wants you to live a life of forgiveness. And so when you choose to forgive, you complete the circle. And then now you have this ability to give pity. You have this ability to live out this list we just looked at. And so I'm about to walk down the aisle and get married to Chelsea, November 17, 2007. And my dad walks in wearing the clothes from the day before, drunk. And I look at him and I remember it like it was yesterday. And I wasn't hurt. I wasn't mad. It was the best day of my life. And I looked at him and I had pity. Because it should have been one of the best days of his life. Because his, his son, the first one to get married, was getting married. And he couldn't control his addiction and enjoy it. And God brought me to that place. And what Paul is saying is that we have to be marked by forgiveness. Is your life marked by forgiveness or are you bound by bitterness? We're going to talk more about that here in a few minutes, but I want to move on into verse 14. It says, but above all these things, put on love. You can circle that phrase, put on love. He says, above them all, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. That word perfection in the Greek, it, it's the same usage that Jesus says at the end of his life. He says, tetelestai. And that means it is finished. And so Paul is saying, put on love, which is the bond of finishing. It's the finished work. And he goes on in 15, he says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. You could circle rule in your hearts. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And he says, to which also you were called into one body. That's the church. And I love this. And he says, and be thankful. And be thankful. We'll explain that real quick. Point number two, if you're taking notes, write this down. Put on love. Put on love. Love is so confusing in our culture, isn't it? 
Like, we can, we, can ask, we can bring 10 people up here, ask, hey, what is love? We get 10 different answers, you know? Like, love is one of those things that it's, like, we all know about it, but none of us know about it, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just kind of like one of those hard things to pinpoint. Is it a feeling? Is it an action? Is it a night? Is it a morning? I mean, what is love, you know? And, and we sing about it all the time. We talk about it all the time. And, and, but it's hard to define. Let me just give you a clear formula for love, okay? Here's the formula. Love equals you before me. Love equals you before me. Love is not a feeling, it's an action. The feelings of love come because you are acting out love. Love is a choice. I wonder, do you see people as projects and objects? Because if you see people as projects and objects, you're not able to love. See, most of you don't ever position yourself in a place to actually love somebody that's different than you because all you want to do is hang out with people just like you. But when the opportunity presents itself to, to give witness to Christ, to sneeze Jesus on somebody, if you will, and try to get them infected, if you know what I'm saying, you're like, no, nah, I don't want to do all that. It's like they smell or they're different than me or I don't know about that culture or whatever else. But, man, when do you get the chance to show love the most, when you're with people like you or people different than you? Uh, last week we had a, a couple of ladies that came in and found Josiah, and they're like, hey, I need some gas money. And it's like 9.30 at night, I think, and Josiah's like, hey, well, we're, it's our night of ministry. We're, we're shutting things down. He said, I would love to help you, but if you could wait for a little while while we finish everything tonight, uh, and, then, and then we'll, we'll try to help you out. And so, you know, she left and went back out to her car, and so Josiah found me as we were kind of letting the dust settle around here, and so we love getting to stay late, minister with you guys, minister to you guys. It's awesome every week. And so, but all the dust began to settle. It's usually a long day for us, and he's like, hey, would you go with me just for accountability? These two ladies, they need gas. And I'm like, yeah, bro, I'm with you, man. Ride or die. We boys for life, you know. And so, anyway, we go out there. It's like, I think it's around 11 o'clock on Tuesday night, and he's like, there's their car. He's like, I'm going to let you, that looks like they're asleep or dead. I don't know, you know. So I'm going to let you go investigate that. So I did kind of like that. Like if you're ever knocking on somebody's window that's asleep, like you don't know if you're about to get shot or something, so let me just give you some advice. Just kind of like get ready to knock and run, okay? You know what I'm saying? Be like, you know, like you got to dodge a bullet or something or, you know, don't want to get pistol whipped or whatever. Anyway, so we knocked and they did, they did this thing like, ah, you know, because they thought they were driving. And we're like, hey, we're, we're going to help you get some gas. And their license plate said Nevada. We went over to a gas station and we just said, hey, what, what are y'all doing? And this lady, her name was Anne, and she had, had come on a rescue mission to help her sister. They were both middle-aged women. And, and they began just to tell us our story, and we're just trying to get to this place to help get some relief from this relationship that she's in, all this drama. And we just said, hey, yeah, we'd love to get you some gas. Do you know Christ? And they said, oh, yes, we know Christ. He's our Savior. And we said, well, could we pray with you? They're not young adults. They don't look like young adults. They don't smell like young adults. They don't act like young adults. But it gave us the opportunity to put on love. And when you want to live a life that's you before me, and you want to sneeze Jesus on somebody, then put on love. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. It's when you serve when you don't want to, when it's been a long day and you're tired. It's when you speak up when you'd rather be sullen and silent and just keep the peace. Love is when you stay silent, when you want to say something, regardless of what you think or feel. It's when you bring a thoughtful gift or you help someone out in need. It's when you go to the hospital when somebody's in there and it's inconvenient. It's when you shoot that text at 2 a.m. because someone came to your mind and you know where they're at, or you know where they're struggling, you say, I love you, I'm praying for you. It's all of these choices. It's to put other people's needs above your own. That's love. It's not this mysterious flowers and diamonds and chocolate. I mean, those can be involved, but it's way more than that. The real thing is happening when you before me is your reality. John 3.30, that's love, that he must become greater and I must become less. Philippians 2.3, that's love, to do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in everything consider others better than yourselves. John 15.13, that's love. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends, and you are my friends. Are you marked by love? Do you wake up and put love on? The people that know you the best and the people that love you the most, would they say about you, he's so considerate of me? She's so con It's like she never thinks of herself. 
She doesn't ever talk about herself. She's always interested in me. Or Man, it's like he, he just is a servant. He just puts my needs above his own. Is that how people speak of you? Listen, if you don't learn how to put on love now, when do you think you're just going to flip that on? You're becoming more of who you are today, okay? And so you may be in a community group. You may be in a family like, Chad, you don't know my group. You don't know my family. Like, they're not, I don't love them. And if you came up to me and told me that, you know what I'd tell you? Go love them. You're like, I just told you I don't love them. What do you mean go love them? What are you saying, Chad? This is weird, okay? What I mean is that love is not a feeling. It's an action. And you start doing the one another's, and you go to 1 Corinthians and find out what love is, and then you put it into motion, and the feelings will follow. Paul, he says that this love, he says it binds all things together. He calls it the bond of, of perfection. So one of the things, I don't know if you know this about me, but I love to do leather work. And I have this, like, manly sewing machine. I brought a picture for y'all to see in case you don't believe me, all right? Like, that's tough. It ain't this, like, little plastic put-on-your-table type thing, all right? That thing's heavy, okay? I could sew, I could sew your face to your hand if you wanted me to, all right? I'm, I won't do that, but you know what I'm saying. It'd be kind of weird. But anyway, and I love to sew. And, and what I love to do is I love to cut out all of these leather parts, and then the sewing machine is what brings them all together. It's what binds them together. And in the sewing machine, there's all these little parts, you know, and, and all the little parts, they all move together so that they can bind some things together. And I share that with you because that's kind of a picture of us tonight. That's a picture of the church. You have all these little parts that are coming together in the hopes of binding some things and building some things and creating some new things in this world. But when you bring parts together and when you bring people together, there's friction. And so just about every time I use this sewing machine, you know what I got to put in the sewing machine? What we like to call in the South, oh, I don't think that's how you say it, but that's how I say it. O-I-L, oh, okay. And so I got to oil my machine up. And when I put oil in my, my machine, it allows there to be fluidity in all of those parts. And so my sewing machine can bind some things together and it can accomplish its purpose. And Paul's saying if you're going to come together, church, and you're going to be all that God has created you to be, you're going to need some oil in your life. You're going to need the oil of forbearance. You're going to need the oil of forgiveness. You're going to need the oil of love to lubricate and to help you gel together so that when the friction comes, you don't crash and, and cut and burn one another, but you're able to work together in harmony and in beauty and accomplish the purpose that Christ has called you to accomplish. In verse 15, he tells us, he says, hey, let the peace of God rule your heart since you've been called with one body and be thankful. I love this because the peace of God, it, it should kind of flow naturally when we set these things in motion. The peace of God, it rushes to rule the hearts of the people of God when we choose to walk in the path of God. But so many of us are looking for peace in all the wrong places, right? Let me just be honest. Peace is not found in a pill. Peace is not found in a position. Peace is not found in a place. Peace is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And when you allow Jesus to rule your heart, his peace comes to rule as well. But it's so hard because some of you here, man, and anxiety is a real thing. Depression's a real thing. And I'm not trying to minimize that. And so you'll, you'll get around people that don't, that's not really their thing. And so you're like, man, I'm just struggling with depression or anxiety. And they look at you like, well, just stop. And you're like, you don't understand. You can't just stop. That's like telling my six-year-old when she gets scared in the dark, hey, stop being scared. She's like, turn the light on. You know, and I'm like, you can't just like not be scared, right? And so you can't just like not be anxious or not be depressed. It's not that easy. And so it's what you do when those things come. Like the scripture never says, hey, you just need to not be these things. It says, hey, when you are depressed or when you are anxious. Paul says elsewhere, he says, hey, when you get anxious, and when you get worried, man, you've got to begin to seek him in prayer and supplication. He says in Philippians 4, he says, set your mind on these things. And he says, you've got to come to him in prayer and supplication. Be anxious for nothing. And then he says, the peace which surpasses all understanding will guard your heart. And so when anxiety wells up, don't run to anything other than Jesus first and then ask that he would fill your heart and allow his peace to rule over you. See, write this down if you're, if you're taking notes. Peace flows to the heart when the mouth is giving thanks. And so one of the best ways for you to evoke the peace of God in your heart, Paul says it right there in verse 15, be thankful. Be thankful. 
And so when you're getting locked into that, that, that um, headlock of depression or anxiety or, or worry or fear, man, begin to be thankful. My wife, she um, has a tendency to have this current of fear in her life. And so, it, like, when I mentioned that I got the flu a couple of years ago, like, it gripped her, man. Like, I was convinced in that moment. I was like, I don't think you love me. I, like, I don't think you want me. And she's like, get in the basement. You got the flu. You're going to kill our t-. I'm like, whoa, time out, right? You know, I went down to the bay. I did what she told me, but you know what I'm saying. Anyway, what I tell her when this thing happens, when it begins to grab a hold of her, I say, hey, baby, you've got to put it in perspective and give thanks. Put it in perspective and give thanks. Notice I don't tell her, hey, you shouldn't be afraid. I don't tell her to stop fearing. I say, hey, put it in perspective. I'm telling you what to do with your fear. I'm telling you what the word of God tells you to do with your depression, your anxiety. Put it in perspective and give thanks. Don't let that thing get an arm bar on your heart. Don't let that thing rule your heart. Let the peace of God rule your heart. Because in, when you put it in perspective, in 10 billion years, what's going to matter? What you did for Jesus. And give thanks. Begin to thank God. We should be experts of the goodness of God in our life. I challenge you to start a thankful list. Maybe every year that you are alive, some of you that's 20, some of you that's 30, some of you that's 27. Write down 27 things before, the, before Sunday, 27 things that you're thankful for. I started a list that is simply named after an old song. It says, do not stand at my grave and weep. So I started the document, do not stand at my grave and weep. Why? And so when I, when I die and you, and, and you bury me or somebody buries me, whoever, I don't care, burn me up, whatever you're going to do, do not stand in my grave and weep because I ain't there, thankful. Because I married the love of my life. And we, we've gotten to travel and we've gotten to bring three little kids in the world. I've been there when they were born. I've seen people move from death spiritually to life over and over again. I'm thankful for ice cream, specifically Tillamook. I'm thankful for Chateau Milk. I'm thankful for getting to do ministry with one of my best friends. I'm thankful that you guys come and we get to get into God's word and we get to share these things together. What are you thankful for? And when we begin to focus on what God has done, his peace comes into our life like a whirlwind. And peace flows to the heart when our mouth is given thanks. Verse 16, Paul goes on. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Some of your translations say singing with thankfulness in your hearts. And in verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks, there it is again, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Third and finally, if you're taking notes, write this down, admonishing, or admonish faithfully, admonish faithfully. Paul's just given us kind of a, a blueprint for what our churches should be marked by. He says, hey, you need to get into God's word and you need to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. That's why we preach the Bible every week. If you want to know why we do what we do, just look right here. This idea that you let the word of God dwell with you in the Greek is this idea that, that you move in with the word of God and you begin to sit with the word of God. I wonder, are you under the influence of the Bible? Some of you are like, how did he know, right? You know, like, dang, I thought I got this off of me, right? Are you under the influence of the Bible? Man, y'all are in one of the most critical seasons of your life. Man, you're figuring out what vocation you're going to be, be in, what calling God has on your life. You're hopefully figuring out who you're going to marry. <laughs> Some of y'all getting married, you're figuring out where you're going to live. You're going to figure out how many kids you want. You're figuring out who you're going to be about. You're figuring out what degree you're going to get. I wonder, are you under the influence of God's word? Have you allowed the word of God to dwell with you? Or is this just something you do? He says, be under the influence of God's word. And then he goes on, he says that you need to teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And so every week we're going to come here and we're going to preach out of God's book because I don't have anything to say to you that matters. God has written a book and he has divinely inspired these words. And so we will preach them unapologetically. And then we're going to raise our voice in song. We're going to sing about how we've been set free from slavery, from fear. We're going to sing about the living hope that we have. We're going to sing about God being the lion and the lamb. And we're going to raise our voice and declare to God. And our song is going to shout louder than the howls of the enemy. 
And we're going to come here and we're going to raise our voice because that's what God tells us to do and we're not going to make an apology for it. He uses this word that's not really talked a lot about in the church. It's this word admonition. Maybe you've heard that word before if you've been to church before. We don't, I don't think we really use this much in the real world. But it's an important word because it's in the Bible. And I want to talk for a little bit about what it looks like to have a culture of admonition. He tells us to admonish one another. The word admonish or admonition means to give a strong warning. It's like, hey, I see some things and you've got to change these things. It's serious conversations. It's speaking the truth in love. That's what an admonishment is. And I fear that in the church today we have sacrificed the art of admonition on the altar of acceptance that we don't want to come across as judgy in the people of Christ, that we don't want to come across as intolerant to those who claim Christ. But Paul is saying that if you've been infected with the gospel, one of the symptoms is that you admonish one another, that you give admonition and you receive it, that you have hard conversations because hard conversations make soft hearts. And so we have to learn the art of admonition. If you have version, the Bible app that I spoke of earlier, we have a huge list of how to do this. I'm just going to kind of give you the abridged version. Some of you are like, thank God, right? That's you, the Cliff Notes people in the house tonight, right? And so let me just give you kind of the abridged version, some things for you to think about real quick, okay? I want to answer the question, how do you admonish? How do we do this? The first thing is that you got to prepare. you got to prepare. And so when you're preparing, you need to do this first thing. You, you've got to pray for wisdom. James 1.5 says if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask. And so don't be rolling up into somebody's business, all right, if you hadn't prayed for wisdom. Like, hey, I saw the way you looked at this. Like, hold on, time out. Don't be captain admonishment here if you haven't asked God for some wisdom first, okay. Seek the Lord and ask him to give you the right words in the right way at the right time, all right. The second thing you got to do is you got to admonish yourself before you try to admonish somebody else, all right? Matthew 7 says, before you try to go get the splinter out of your neighbor's eye, you better address the plank or the piece of wood that is in your own eye, all right? And so before you get all admonished happy on somebody, maybe you literally look in the mirror and like Michael Jackson, start with a man or a woman in the mirror, all right? And deal with that plank that is in your own eye. And don't be so quick to get something, you know, help. You know, that's what we say in the church, I'm going to help you. No, you need to help you, all right? And so before you go admonish, admonish yourself. The next thing before you go admonish is that you need to be prepared to admonish according to God's word, not your opinion. Listen, let the word of God out the cage and it'll take care of itself. It's like a lion. You don't have to defend or apologize or tell a lion what to do. Just open up the cage. Say, get them. And so we don't, need to, we don't need to formulate our admonishment on our own opinion. That we, like a surgeon, need to allow the word of God to be precise and direct. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. That means it's like a scalpel. And so tell the Holy Spirit, or ask the Holy Spirit, scalpel, right? And then he gives you the word, and then you're like, all right, here, I'm going to address it right here. And it's, and it's able to divide bone from marrow, soul from spirit, that it's alive and active, the next thing before you admonish is that you need to trust the Holy Spirit. You're not the Holy Spirit, okay? Take a deep breath. Some of y'all just got elbowed. Like, wow, you know what you know, you know what I'm saying? Like that person. You're not the Holy Spirit, okay? John 16, verse 8 says, the Holy Spirit will come and he'll convict the world of sin. Your job is not to convict anybody. It's simply to speak faithfully. And so when you get ready to deliver the admonishment, you need to do these things. This is how you deliver the admonishment. First of all, you need to go in private and in person. Go in private and in person. Don't text an admonishment to somebody. Don't text a strong warning or a loving word of truth to somebody. Go to them in person and sit down with them in private. Don't air their stuff out in your community group, in an open group, or at the, at the coffee shop when there's four people at the table. Be like, yeah, man, you wouldn't believe what he did this weekend. I was going to talk to you about that right here in front. Of, don't do that. Go to them private and in person. Matthew 18, verse 15 is kind of the blueprint for how you resolve conflict. It says, if anyone has sinned against you, go to him and tell him his fault and then work it out. And that's what should mark the people of God. You should go and you should be gentle. Galatians 6.1 says this, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Don't be blowing people up thinking you're doing work for Christ. Go to them gently. When you're breaking horses and you're all loud and crazy and I'm going to beat this horse, you're ruining the animal. 
but you, you break them gently and quietly. And you're able to build a relationship and a rapport and direct them in the way that they should go. Be gentle. The next thing is that you should go with clarity, with accuracy, and thoroughly. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. A friend doesn't just start throwing blows like McGregor, okay? It's more like Mayweather, and it's just precise, and it's steady, and it's accurate. If you don't know what that, those are boxers, those are fighters. Some of the women are like, what's he talking about, right? Okay, anyway, about a year ago, they got in a fight. It was kind of a big deal. Anyway, so you want to go with, you want to go with clarity, with accuracy, and you want to go thoroughly. Don't just generalize some things. You know, you always do this, and when you do that, everyone feels this way. Like, that's not helping anybody, Okay. And then lastly, when you deliver the admonishment, be patient. Be patient. Don't demand a response right now. The Lord is patient with you. So be patient with people. Trust the Holy Spirit to work when you give that admonishment. And then before you're done, ask these two questions. Hey, are we good? If you just had a hard conversation, you just coached somebody. Say, hey, are we good? And then give them the chance to give you admonishment or feedback after you just had a hard conversation with them. And ask them this question, do I need to repent of anything I said? And if they say, man, you came at me all wrong or all at the wrong time. My dog just died this morning. And they say, man, I'm sorry, forgive me for that or whatever. And let them have that chance. And so ask those questions. Because the point of admonishment is that you would be unified and that you would be better and further towards Christ Not that you would be disunified and you would be further from Christ. And when we love people, we speak the truth in love. Well, on the flip side, we don't just want to have a culture of people that know how to give good admonishment. We got to have a culture of people that can receive it too. We got to have a culture of people that are ready to have someone coach them as well. And so here's how you receive admonishment. First of all, you got to humble yourself. James 4, 6 says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Secondly, you've got to be quick to listen and slow to speak. When someone is speaking truth, they're dropping truth bombs in your life. Don't try to defend yourself. Listen, you should be suspicious of your flesh's defensiveness. And just shut up and listen. Be slow to speak and quick to listen. Next, you've got to fight for clarity. When you're receiving admonishment, if you're not clear what they're trying to say, hey, say, hey, can you help me understand? And then nextly, you need to be grateful so often when somebody has a hard or difficult conversation, in that moment we're like, we want to buck their, their uh, rebuke and we want to be like, man, who are you to tell me? But the scripture says this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. It says, respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. And it says to hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. And then lastly, the way that you receive an admonishment is that you have to learn to love the admonishment and love the admonisher. The Bible's chock full. Let me just give you four reasons why you should love the admonishment and love the admonisher. Psalms 141.5 says, Let a righteous man strike me, and it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It's oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Proverbs 24, 26 says, an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. Proverbs 9, 8 says, rebuke the wise and they will love you. I love this one. Proverbs 12, 1 says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. I love the Bible. It just tells it like it is. And so if you're in community or if you're in a family, you want to cultivate, I mean, we want to see an, an environment of admonition cultivated in this room tonight. And so ask these three questions. Some of you are like, man, I want to be a better believer. I want to be a better Christian. I want to be the, the man or the woman of God that he's created me to be. I, I would want someone to help me get further down the road so I'll be a better husband someday. I'll be a better man. Well, ask yourself these three questions. Do people know that they have the green light to admonish you? So I'm like, I've, Chad, what are you talking about? I've never been admonished. Do people know they have the green light to admonish you? Number two, question, do they feel the freedom to raise issues that aren't black and white? Have you given people the freedom to investigate the way that you go about entertainment, the way you go about pleasure, the way you go about food, the way you go about social media, the way you go about video games, the way you go about relationships? Number three, do you all or excuse me, do you all, the group you're with, do y'all consistently build an environment of encouragement? Listen, if you're in a community group tonight, 
then your answer to these three questions by being in a community group is a resounding yes. And so if you are in a community group and someone begins to speak the truth to you in love and you get all defensive and you start getting bowed up, you've misunderstood the mandate of Scripture. And you're not bearing the symptoms of a gospel-infected heart. So quit whining when people are trying to help you. And learn the art of admonition. And let us not be a ministry that sacrifices the art of admonition on the altar of acceptance. But may we punch passivity in the teeth and be people who do not tolerate sin in the people of God. And have hard conversations. Because true love speaks the truth in love. Let us admonish faithfully. Well, as we we finish tonight, I remember a season in my life when the Word of God and the man of God began to admonish me. And the admonition that I received was an admonition to forgive. That I was locked in this, I showed you that circle of forgiveness, I was locked in that track of bitterness. And I remember it was a a hard season, but, but God began to liberate me from the bondage of bitterness. So you were given a match tonight. I want you to pull that out. And as we finish tonight, I want to land back in this lane of forgiveness is what we, what we told you earlier. See, this match, it represents unforgiveness. And I brought some gasoline with me tonight. And this gasoline represents your circumstances. And I know in a room this size, with this many people, there's a lot of hurt here tonight. And some of you have come in here tonight and you have the power of unforgiveness in your life. That, that there, are, there are right reasons why you should be mad with people. There are right reasons why you should have come in here and have a chip on your shoulder. You have some pain in your life. And what you do with your unforgiveness, it matters. Uh, what if when I was eight and my dad allowed me to be exposed to that pornographic magazine, what if I just begin to get mad at him? What if when I was 12 and my dad, he walked out on Mother's Day, I said, Dad, I cannot believe you left me on Mother's Day. What if when I was 16 and my dad was incarcerated and we couldn't pay child support, I was like, Dad, you have caused this in my life and I can't believe it. What if when I was 21 or 22 and about to walk down the aisle, my dad comes in stammering drunk, and I'm like, Dad, you have caused all of this pain in my life. And I begin to say, I am bitter towards you, and I can't believe you've done this. And I said, you know what? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to light you on fire. And I chose to take the match of unforgiveness and strike it, thinking that if I struck it and I threw it at him, it would catch him on fire. But the only hell that I would be causing in someone's life is my own. See, we can't control our circumstances, but we can control our response. And some of you tonight, you need to deal with some hurt that you have in your life. That some of you, you need to forgive the, the person that's hurt you the most and the person that you're holding hostage in bitterness and unforgiveness is you. That God's given you grace to give other people. He's given you grace to give you too. Some of you are like, well, Chad, I, I don't know, man. I, I, I just, I don't think I can, I can't let go of what they did. And listen, Christ loves you too much to let you hang on to your bitterness. And what you're showing when you withhold forgiveness from someone is that you're without forgiveness in your own life. That's why Paul says that we are forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. Think about how Christ has forgiven you. One of his best friends, Peter, he denied that he even knew Jesus when Jesus was in his lowest point. And then Jesus is taken up to this place. He's stripped naked, and he's being crucified by these men, and men are mocking him on this cross, and his mom's there. And one of his best friends, Mary, and one of his best friends, John, they're there. They're weeping at his cross. 
And what comes forth from his mouth is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That you holding on to your bitterness and unforgiveness shows the watching world the shallow puddle of God's grace that you comprehend. Because you cannot simultaneously hold someone in contempt and in bitterness and understand the forgiveness of God. And so tonight is a night of forgiveness. And here in a second, we're going to sing a song and then we'll have a team up here. And maybe you need to come up here and you need to take your match and you need to throw it up on the stage and say, hey, I'm choosing to let go of my bitterness. Some of you may need to go to someone in this room tonight before we're done out of here and go and apologize and ask for forgiveness. Matthew 5, Jesus says, hey, before you come bringing your offerings in the church, first go be reconciled. Maybe some of you, when the song starts, you need to leave and make a phone call. Some of you are here and you're like, Chad, I, I don't know if I can forgive this person. I mean, it, it's too hard. We would love to pray with you. We're not going to condemn you tonight. We're simply going to come alongside of you and we're going to ask God to do what we ask him to do every week. God, would you do the impossible? Or perhaps some of you, you need to come and you need to say, hey, I don't know the forgiveness of God. And you simply need to allow God to rush into your life because you can't give what you don't have. And forgiving people forgive people. What do you need to do with your bitterness tonight? Will you choose to strike it and set ablaze to someone or will you choose to sacrifice it unto Christ and trust that he will right all wrongs? And you look to the cross for the evidence of his seriousness of justice. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for tonight. God, I pray for my friends that you would help them. God, help us to be people that are free from the baggage of bitterness. God, help us to be people that are marked by forgiveness, by love. God, I pray if there's someone here and they don't know you, God, they would, they would seek you out. God, your forgiveness and your love, it is overwhelming, and we are thankful for the way that you, you found Peter that day, and he had denied you, and you said, I do not hold it against you that we hurt you, you tried to help us, you pushed past bitterness and you pitied us and you forgave us, you felt sorry and you set your sorrow in action. And God, I pray that we would see your forgiveness and you would empower us to be people of forgiveness for your glory in Christ's name, amen.